during Lent this year, the plan is that we will be having a, uh, a time where we all together focus not just in worship, but also in uh, personal devotions and in small groups on uh, a theme. We haven't chosen the theme yet, but that's our plan, and we're going to hopefully get some small groups going, a short-term small group, so you can see uh, what that is like and hopefully decide that that is something you want to continue uh, to participate in. But between then, or now and then, I, I was looking for uh, six or seven weeks uh, of a sermon series, and I remembered that there are seven letters to the church churches that were revealed by Jesus to John in the book of Revelation. So that's what we're going to be looking at is those seven letters to the churches uh, in the book of Revelation. I want to um, make sure to remember to read the passage, but before I do, I just want to um, give you a little bit of an outline or a, a, a foundation for where this is coming from, where the whole book of Revelation is coming from. Now, I grew up in a church that used Revelation to scare me. And Jesus was coming back, and you better be ready, and you better interpret all these signs just right and avoid all those things that, that they think might be what the book of Revelation is talking about. And, and they were very effective. I was scared. And I think there's some fear of the Lord that is very, very appropriate. But the book of Revelation, if you look at the intent of it, was actually written as a comfort when Jesus appears to John, John falls at his feet as though dead, and Jesus placed his right hand on me, John says, and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look. I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and of Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Jesus, when he appears to John, comes to bring grace and peace, not fear and anxiety. Now, through the book of Revelation, and... I'm doing the easy part of Revelation, by the way. These letters are pretty straightforward. There's not a lot of fantastic imagery in them. It's not the strength of the apocalyptic style of writing that we find in the remainder of the book. So when you go out and tell your friends that well, my preacher's preaching Revelation, well, you know, um, make sure to tell them it's not the hard parts. But those, even those hard parts are written to to be visual examples of the truth we find in the rest of Scripture, the visual pictures of the fact that in the end, Jesus will return and establish his kingdom in a new heaven and a new earth. I don't think it's wise to look at all those pictures and try to figure out which, which references to which current country or which current political situation. The point is, Jesus will establish his kingdom. And in the meantime, he has placed his church on the earth. And you know, if you know biblical themes and biblical imagery, that the number seven means completion, 
So when we look at this picture of seven churches, what he's really looking at is the church. And in each of these letters to each of the seven churches, we find something that is true about us. There are encouragements and there are challenges, and we need to receive all of them to whatever degree they are applicable to us. And so these letters, even though they're written to seven specific geographical churches, are written to us as well. So let us hear what God has to say to us through these letters. And the first one is to the church in Ephesus, and it is found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, this I hold against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Stan Mass writes of the book of Revelation. Revelation was written for persecuted Christians to give grace and peace rooted in the work of Christ the King. We can survive anything if we are sure of that grace and peace. And the picture that we first get is of Jesus walking through these churches, which are the lampstands. The imagery is there of a lampstand, and the churches, of course, are the light of the world, as Jesus had declared to his disciples. So the, the, the churches are called to be shining the light of the gospel into the world. And the, the church at Ephesus was doing a good job on many levels. They were careful in their theology. They were making sure that they didn't embrace error along with truth. They were careful to maintain the truth, which is in a very, that's a very important thing to do. And in our day, it's much more, I think, um, for us more challenging than it has been in our more recent past, probably about the same level of challenge as it was to the church in Ephesus, because in our day, truth claims are suspect. We, we really like to think that every truth has truth in it. Every truth is okay and to some degree or another, and the real, the real truth is the one in your heart. But Christians need to realize that that idea is, has, a, has an atheistic base to it. If truth, if the, if the location of real truth is your heart, then there is nothing outside of you that has any truth claim. Do you understand that? It, 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 it comes from the belief that we've all evolved or we are here somehow, but there's no God involved. So it makes sense then that, that whatever we believe is, is good for us, it's okay for us, because there is nothing outside of us that has uh, any truth that is universal. But 
as believers in Jesus Christ, as believers in God our creator, we believe that there is one outside of us and in him is truth. So all truth must be measured against the truth. All truth claims must be measured against the claims or the truth that exists in God. So we can't say, well, whatever, you know, it's okay for you and my truth's okay for me. We can't say, well, you know, Jesus said not to judge, so I'm not going to judge someone else's truth. I'm just going to embrace little pieces of the truth I hear here and little pieces of the truth I hear here, and I'm going to put it all together in, in the faith that I want to believe, the faith that makes sense for me. Folks, that is a very postmodern idea, but it is not at all a biblical idea because there is truth. The church at Ephesus understood this. They understood that God has revealed truth to us, and it is very, very important that we maintain the truth. Because if you, if you build your life on anything other than the solid foundation of God's truth, it will wash away. The other thing they were really good at is working. They were a church that worked hard. They were diligent. They might have had their committee structure all laid out and people did knew what they were supposed to do and everyone did their job and they were very diligent in the work of the church. They persevered. It wasn't always easy for them to maintain this truth in a, in a world that said there are all kinds of truths, that said their truth was limiting and their truth was um, not really what people wanted to hear, but they persevered. They believed God's truth. They persevered in work. It was not always easy, but they knew that the work that w of the kingdom is vital and important, so they were diligent in working. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and not grown weary. Now, it's that all of that sounds like the ideal church, does it not? People who are committed to the truth, people who are committed enough to, to live out the truth, to work hard for the work of the church, people who are willing, even when it's difficult, to continue to work for the church. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, yet, yet I have this against you. You have lost the love that you had at the beginning. Which weighed in the balance seems like, okay, well, we're doing all this really well, so that little piece of it, no big deal, right? We'll, we'll work at that a bit, we'll try, but you know, look at this, Jesus, look at all the good stuff we're doing. Don't judge us too harshly on that, but what does Jesus say? If you do not repent, verse 5, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, the lampstand is what holds the flame of the gospel. What the lampstand holds the work of the kingdom. The lampstand is the church. And the flame is their witness. And what Jesus is saying is, if you do not repent of this, you will no longer be a church. I will remove your church status from you. 
So you can't balance this out and say, well, we're doing pretty well on these things and this one's not important. Jesus says it is vitally important. And if you don't get this, you will stop being a church. And what is this? You have forsaken the love you had at first. Love is the key to being the church. Yes, all those other things are important. It is vital that we do the work of ministry. It is very important that we make sure that our theology is correct and we're, we're living out from biblical truths, not from truths of our own imaginations, which aren't really truths at all. But it is vital that we love. It all goes back to what Jesus says was the first and greatest commandment. Love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The church must be characterized by love. And I don't know if any of you have gone through a season, or maybe are in a season now, where the love is, is sort of waning, dried up. But you're still here, right? You're still faithful, right? You're still doing doing the stuff that you're supposed to do. And you think, well, at least I'm doing that. Lord, weigh that against my lack of love for you and for my neighbor. And the Lord says, that I cannot do. Because the foundation of it all is love. And you've probably met those people that are the kind of Christian and I put that in quotes because I'm just not sure, who live by the rules, who live by the truth, who make it very important that they understand the truth and they make sure you know what the truth is and if you stray in any way, they will point it out to you. And they are very active, they are very vigilant, they are very holy, they do only what is right and good and they do not do those things that evil people do. And they are, they consider themselves to be strong Christians because they live the right way. And they are nasty. They are so sure that they are getting it right and you're getting it wrong that they don't mind telling you so. And you know, part of the reason for that is it is hard work to be a Christian without the love of God. In fact, it's impossible. But it's not impossible to play at it, to pretend. You can join a church, you can start coming to a church and learn pretty quickly how this church reacts, how, what you're supposed to do in this church, when you're supposed to stand up and when you're supposed to sit down, even in a contemporary service where there are no asterisks in a bulletin or asteri, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Uh, but what matters is you can figure us out and it doesn't take too much and you can fit in fairly easily externally. But the Lord looks at the heart and what God wants to see is hearts filled with his love. We love because he first loved us. It is so important that our relationship with God begins with his love for us. 
because if it begins with any effort on our part to earn our salvation, we will, number one, fail, and number two, be very frustrated, and number three, be very frustrating to the people around us. Because the gospel is about love. For God so loved the world. For God so loved you that he gave his only son. A friend of mine taught me a little exercise a few months ago. And the exercise is to close your eyes, and you don't have to close your eyes now, you can imagine that your eyes are closed, and imagine that in your imagination you've opened your eyes. And when you open your eyes, Jesus is looking at you. He is right here. What is the look on his face? Is he disappointed? Is he angry? Or can you see in his eyes a depth of love for you that you can't even imagine? Because when he looks at you, he looks at you with that kind of love. There may be some degree of pity behind that look of love. Because he knows your weakness. He knows how easy it is for you to get caught up in things that are not really life-giving. He knows how easy it is for you to forget him, to forget the source of life and love. But the main focus of his eyes when he looks at you is his love for you. And it is only when we can embrace that, only when we can be confident in his love and continue to build up that confidence in his love for us, that we truly are the church that we truly are Christians, that we can truly allow that love to fill our hearts so much that it then overflows back to him and to the world around us. It's a very sad thing that many secular people, that means people outside the church, view the church as a group of judgmental, holier-than-thou people who, if they entered the church, would say, what are you doing here? Even if we wouldn't do that, that's how they see us. Why? Why do they see us that way? Is there any just reason for them to see us that way? Are there public pronouncements by the church or by Christians? And if you are a Christian... Everything you say and everything you do is being watched by others. And they believe that Christians act like that. They believe that Christians love like that. Or don't. So, if we are confident in this love, 
the love of Christ for us, the love of God for us, the love of God that has him singing over us, rejoicing over us with song, the love of God that has him looking at us with a depth of compassion, a depth of love, a depth of acceptance and grace that we can't even imagine. If we're not living in that, we're missing the point. We're missing the power. We're missing our purpose. So what do we call to do? If we fit this description of the, the church at Ephesus in any way, what are we to do? Verse 5, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. So the preacher who wants to, you know, have words that match each other says, okay, consider how far you have fallen. Remember. Remember when you experienced God's love, the fullest you've ever experienced it. Think about that. Remember that. Meditate on that. Remember God's love that you have experienced at some point or another. And then it says, repent, remember, repent. In other words, turn around. Repent means turn around. If your focus is elsewhere on the things of the world or on you turn away from, from God because you think that he's mad at you or you think that he doesn't love you or you think that he doesn't really have your best interest at heart, turn around, turn around and see his face. See his face loving you. And then it says, and do the things you did at first. So repent, I mean, re remember, repent, and return. Return to that life, that life lived in relationship with God that is a relationship of confident love. And if that relationship is not part of your past, you can make it part of your future by receiving the love of God, by receiving this all-embracing love, and then living in it, enjoying it. It's not like, you know, if you've ever um, been challenged to love someone, you know, or called to love everybody, and there's that person at the office that, ay ay ay, I can't do it, you say. So, trying harder to love, how does that work? It doesn't. The way to love is to step back and receive the love of God, allow that love to bubble up and then flow out of you, to pray, pray for this person. Because our love is not sufficient. Our love doesn't cut it. Our love is based in very selfish things. But God's love is big. And God's, and God's love can flow into us and through us. Let's live there. Let's live confident in the love of God.
wonderful thing about being Christian is that Christianity is called a religion, but it's not. Christianity is based in relationship with God. What a religion is, is a system of beliefs and a system of actions that work, that a person can work through to earn God's favor. Christianity is God's favor already revealed, already made available for us, and the only thing we do is receive it. And that's why this table is so beautiful. We come to this table, this table of communion, communion meaning, meaning fellowship with God, and we receive. We don't give anything we receive because God has prepared this table for us, and he asks us to receive And when we receive this bread and when we receive this cup, we are receiving through the Holy Spirit Jesus' presence in a very wonderful and powerful way. So all who are in Christ come to the table. Let us pray. We thank you, our gracious God, for your love for us. And we admit that our love for you most often pales significantly in comparison. But I pray, we pray, that you would kindle your love inside of us. Let us know it with confidence. Let us be so sure of your love for us that we allow that love to take over and that that love would be the motivation for all of our service to you. That love would be our motivation for making sure that we understand you correctly, that that love would be our motivation for serving others so that they may experience that love too through us. And we know that we're not capable of doing this by ourselves, and for that we are grateful because it causes us to come to you, to come to you with humility, to come to you knowing that only in you do we have the strength to serve you. And we thank you for this table because at this table we are nourished to serve you. We are made able to reach out in your name with your Holy Spirit's power and presence, with the love of Jesus Christ flowing through us to the world that is in great need. So I pray now that you would take this bread and make it be for us the body of Christ, equipping us to be the body of Christ in the world. And take this cup and make it be for us the blood of Christ coursing through our veins to bring new life, new hope, new love, new peace. That we would be equipped to be your people, faithful to your call upon us. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.